Good morning. Uh, <laughs> I am used to, the last two and a half years I've been in St. Andrews doing PhD study, and, and when you present in front of a group, like, in academia, you spend, you know, a few weeks writing a paper, and you have a manuscript in front of you, and you, you go to the conference or the, or the seminar or whatever it is, and you read this paper out. And part of the task in, in writing a paper for a, a conference or a seminar is to make it as obscure as you possibly can so that nobody really understands what you're saying and you come across looking really, really smart. Um, it's been a, a while since I've preached regularly, and so this is, um, my goal is not to obscure the, the point. It's to actually maybe help you understand something uh, clearly and... So what I, my, my sermon this morning is it's structured along the lines of how I discovered this text, particularly the, the command, love the Lord your God with all your soul. When, when Ken suggested to me that he was going to do this sermon series and that my visit was going to be right here with uh, teaching on loving the Lord your God with your soul, my first thought was, no, please not, soul because I have no idea what to say about that. Um, and <clears throat> part of that has to do with, with the way we imagine and understand the soul in our present context. So, this pre preparing this sermon has been a great experience for me of just wrestling with the text, struggling with what this text means, and, and seeing it in a way that is fresh and new and just a discovery, a personal discovery for me. So I'm really excited about sharing this with you. Before we begin, let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for being with us this morning, for giving us your spirit. Take my words this morning and put them in service of your word. And now help me do what I can only do with your help. Amen. So our text is Mark 12. Starting at verse 28. And I'm not sure what scripture translation you use here. I'm reading out of the NRSV. Uh, so there you have it. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. Now, the first thing about this text is that it's really not that, it's not one of those texts where the scribe gets 
kind of put in his place by Jesus. He asks this tricky question, and Jesus comes back with this answer that undermines the question and reframes the whole issue, and then the scribe, you know, or the Pharisees go away. They can't say anything, and they're sort of ashamed for, for <laughs> what they tried to do. This is one of those ones where the scribe asks him the question, and he gives the right answer, the answer that everybody back then would have known. This is the greatest commandment. It's what they would pray at night and what they would pray in the morning and and what they would pray growing up, and their whole lives would be focused on this one prayer. So the, the, the peculiar thing about what happens here is when the scribe says, he answers, and this much this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that leads into the, the next section of Mark where, where there's a prophecy of the destruction of the temple. And so this is sort of leading up to that, that we can be faithful to God even when the temple is destroyed. And so it, it anticipates a time when the temple is no more and God's people will love him and, and love him in a, a way that is really faithful to this greatest commandment. Now, I wanted to say that that's the context in which this, this, this text is given. But we're looking at the, at the commandment here because the task is set out to understand more clearly what it means to love the Lord your God with all your soul. And so in order to do that, we're going to have to go back and look at the, the commandment in its context in the book of Deuteronomy and other places. But... What I want to point out is that Mark's context, these people would have understood this command. They would have understood what it meant to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. But in our context, I think we need to hear it again, and we need to press into what does it actually mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other thing to mention, too, is that, is that dividing them up and, and calling attention to each one particularly is a perfectly valid way of doing this. But you ought to understand that the point is that we love him with all that we are. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's you love God with everything that you are. That's the point. But these different words carry with them different baggage. And in, in order for us to understand what it means to love the Lord our God with our soul, we need to sort of unpack the way we've learned to use the word soul. Meaning, in the philosophy of language, one of the truisms that has come about is that meaning is use. What a word means is not some dictionary definition of the word. It's how that word is used. So, for example, if I were to say, or, or if, if my son learns, learns the colors, and, and you want to teach him what the color red is, you don't come out with a dictionary definition of red you point to things that are red. And in the, in the pointing, in the learning to name certain things red, he learns what the color red is. And so he learns the meaning of that term in its use. But what that means is that we will learn how to use language and they get embedded into our context and they gain meanings from how we use them. And sometimes when we take, say, a, a contemporary use of a term and then read an ancient text like the Gospel of Mark or Deuteronomy, we take a word that's formed a meaning in one context and put it into a completely other context. And in that context, it, it skews and corrupts our reading of that. It's sort of like 
learning, uh, well, so I've been in Scotland, right? We drive on the left side of the road in Scotland. And it's, it's incredibly harrowing to anticipate learning to drive on the opposite side of the road. You can only imagine. And of course, Bend here, we have these roundabouts. And in Scotland and the UK, they have roundabouts everywhere. I mean, freeways have roundabouts at them at interchanges rather than off-ramps and stuff. And, and the, the sign that, that, that appears to, you have to learn how to quickly read this, this all I can compare it to is like a circuit diagram. You know, if you're doing engineering of circuits and you've got these little things, you've got to read that in about five seconds before you hit the roundabout and know which lane to get into. And it's mind-boggling. Anyway, coming back here, I've been driving for the first time for two and a half years on the right side of the street this week, this weekend. And um, it's sort of like this. It's, it's like... It's like learning, you're used to one context, and you come to a roundabout, I wanted to go left. And, and no, you, you go right. And, and so it's sort of like, I've got to think, and I've got to change the paradigm in which I'm working. And I've got to switch it over to the other side, and I've got to think about it and learn it. And after time, I get more and more used to it. Now, the, the one-way streets don't help, because you drive on the left in the one-way street, and, and you want to just make that left turn into the... It's, anyway, um, I'm still here, which is good. <laughs> We're going to learn to drive a little bit on the other side of the street now when looking at this word soul. And when I think of soul, I've always thought of it in terms of, I mean, this is why I was so afraid of this sermon, uh, sort of the Looney Tunes version of the soul, Daffy Duck or somebody, Bugs Bunny gets killed by whoever, and they, they lie down and, and their little ghost flutters up and goes away and we, we think of the soul that way. In the Western mind, we've been so formed to think of the soul as this immaterial substance that, that sort of exists separate from our bodies. And, and I'm not completely denying that. But what I'm saying is that we think of it this way and we're, we're, we're accustomed to think in a way that separates out who we really are from our physical existence. So I, if you go all the way back to Plato... In his, in his dialogue, an account of Socrates' last days, the Phaedo, there's this little dialogue I'll read here. It's very short. But Socrates is talking to his, his friends who have all gathered around him before he drinks the hemlock and dies. And Socrates says, Do you not think that in general such a man's concern, he's talking about a, a philosopher here, that such a man's concern is not with the body, but that as far as he can, he turns away from the body towards the soul? And the answer says, I do. He says, so in the first place, such things show clearly that the philosophers, more than other men, freeze the soul from association with the body as much as possible. And the response is, apparently. And, and, and so that, that comes, that's, goes back to the, to the time of the biblical writings. And then we go to, say, I was just sort of looking for hymns because I know it's in, our, in the hymns of the church. I found in about a five-second Google search uh, two verses from two different hymns that go back from 1911. Now listen to the, what we would sing. Life on earth is but a vapor. Soon we'll lay these bodies down. But if we continue faithful, we shall wear the victor's crown. Brighter than the stars of heaven, brighter than the dazzling sun, we shall shine among the ransomed when our work on earth is done. Or one more. When the last earth tie is sundered, and my soul set free. When life's cares and toils are numbered, I shall haste to be. 
with my Lord in realms of light, where no sin can ever blight, where ne'er comes the shades of night to his arms I'll flee. Now, I understand how this idea of a soul fleeing from the body could come to be because we, we struggle with our bodies. They get sick. They age. And when you're going through horrible things with your body and you, you can understand wanting to be free from that constraint, free from your bodies. And I understand too, I mean, think about it. We have such wonderful medical care in this country and in the developed world. We have, we have such a gift of that. Think about it 100 years ago or more, where life expectancy wasn't so long, where you could get, a, you could get sick and you could die from a fever or any basic infection. It, it was really something that was, that was, mortality was always there. And so there's a sense in wanting to free yourself from your body. And there's a, there's a hope in that. Now, we'll look at the biblical, how the, the Bible imagines the soul in a second here. But I want to imagine what it would mean to love God with your soul if this were the concept of the soul, this sort of escape soul, the soul freed from the body. It, I, I would think it would lead towards more of a, this internal spirituality, right? A, a very sort of disembodied spirituality that is, that is of the soul, we talk about it in terms of saving people's souls. And so we separate out our evangelism and we concentrate on souls. And so we think about, well, we're going to go, we're going to go preach the gospel and that's really important for evangelism. And then, and then feeding and clothing and, and, and rescuing, those sort of things are, are, are not part of that. Well, the biblical imagination, the way the Bible imagines a soul is something very different. The word soul in the Greek, suke, in just a quick, my most basic Greek dictionary, gives these words, self, inner life, one's inmost being, physical life, that which has life, living creatures, person, human being, etc. In the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated from the Hebrew word nephesh, and the first place in the Hebrew Bible where we see the word nephesh, soul, is Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a nephesh a living being. God creates the man from the dust of the ground, from a clod of earth, as Luther translates it, breathes into his nose, and he becomes a living being. It doesn't say he's given a living soul. It doesn't say that he's given something. He becomes a living soul. Humans are not given a soul we become a soul in the biblical understanding. Now, I had a, a, a meeting right before I left here with a friend, and, and he was able to, he, he heard what I was preaching on. He said, oh, you've got to use this. You've got to use this story. And he, he, uh, he pointed it out to me. It's, it's a story of Rabbi Akiva, and he is 
one of the Jewish rabbis, his dates are about 40 A.D. to 137. And he was killed uh, right at the, the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt, which was the third Jewish revolt, uh, an attempt to sort of rescue the land of Israel for the Jewish people again. And he was, he was killed by the emperor, essentially by the emperor Hadrian's forces, and they, they tortured him and killed him. But the, the Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud, explains what happens here. It was, explains the Talmud, the hour for the recital of the Shema. So that's the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, have, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It was the hour for the recital of the Shema. While they combed, this is, sorry, this is gruesome. While they combed his flesh with iron combs, he was accepting upon himself the kingship of heaven, which really means he was reciting the Shema. He was reciting this as he's being flayed alive. His disciples said to him, Our teacher, even to this point? In other words, are you still able to pray such a prayer under such torture? He said to them, All my days I have been troubled by this verse, with all your soul, which he interpreted as, even if he takes your soul. And he said, When shall I have the opportunity of fulfilling this commandment? And now I finally have this opportunity to do so. Shall I not fulfill it? He prolonged the word echad, one, until he expired while saying it. In a parallel tradition, Akiba is asked by one of the Roman torturers why he was reciting the Shema as they were slowly killing him. He is even accused of being a sorcerer since he appeared to feel no pain. He gives a a similar explanation. Up to now, he has been able to love the Lord with all his might and his heart, but now the time has come to love him with his soul or with his very life. He then continues to recite the prayer until he dies with Adonai Echad, Yahweh is one on his lips. Clearly, the soul is understood here in the century after Paul as bearing the same meaning as in Genesis. It's our embodied life. It's our embodied life, the life that is breathed into our bodies. So the giving up one's life in martyrdom is loving God with your soul. You can't think the soul without the body, which is why the resurrection of the dead is so important. We anticipate a resurrection of our bodies. If it was just the soul that was to go on existing and our bodies were left behind, then our bodies would be, the resurrection of the dead would not be adding anything to us. It would not be a good thing. It would be hindering us again, putting us under this burden of this body. No, the, the soul belongs with the body. So if you're going to think the body without the soul, you're going to think a corpse. If you think the soul without the body, you must think the person fragmented and incomplete. So what does it mean then to love God with the soul? I think Romans 12.1 puts it quite well. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let me give you another image. To counter this sort of horrific image of, the, of being flayed alive and, and of being a martyr and dying for your faith, 
One of the ways I like to explain this is, is to think about if you've ever... It draws upon an imagery of, of baptism. Have you ever dived into a freezing cold mountain river where you just plunge in and the, and the water just completely envelops you and you feel that motion of the water rushing around you and it just, it just wants to take you? We had an opportunity, I used to guide wilderness trips, and we had an opportunity to, to we, we hiked way down in the Sierra, we, way down one of these trails and got to this river with, with 10 students on a 10-day uh, alpine mountaineering course, and we had to get across this river, and it was just swollen, and um, it, it wasn't the greatest decision I ever made as an instructor. But every single one of my students had been on the swim team in their high school, and they were all excellent swimmers, and uh, I sent my co-instructor across first, and, and uh, he went across first, and, and um, we set up this rope and hauled the packs across, and then we, we swam. Everyone swam across, and that, that feeling of just diving into the water, being overwhelmed by it, is absolutely um, just, it's, it's absolutely unique, absolutely incredible. That's the sort of thing that loving God with your soul is like. It's like taking all that you are, your entire life, and your body too, and diving in, diving in to following God and to loving Him. And of course, where do we look for the primary example of what it means to love God with our soul? We look to the one who became human. We look to the truly human one. We look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the human one who loved God with his whole life. He loved God with his soul more so than anybody. He lives it out perfectly. And so when we think about what does it mean to live, to love God with your soul, we look to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the example. The entire, entire direction of his life. Not just some... I mean, I just try to imagine loving God with your soul. It's like, mm, I, I, I love you. <laughs> if it's not part of your body, it's, it's, it's all of you with your life. And, and Jesus loved God. He loved the Father with his whole life. In his concern for the poor, his love for us even in our sin, in his refusal to play the political games of the day, his obedience even to the point of death, Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. But taking the very nature of a servant, being humbled, even to the point of death, the death on a cross. This is what it meant for Jesus to love Father with his soul, with his whole life. It looks like Jesus. Jesus is our example. And for some of us, we need to be reminded of that. That Jesus is an example. He's not just a divine transaction that God accomplishes on our behalf, but He is the example for what it means to live our lives faithful in loving God with our souls, with our whole lives. Some of us need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that. But now here's a problem. We could just end the sermon there and, um, and, and I could go out and encourage you, okay, be like Jesus. 
I give you examples of other people who are like Jesus. Be like Martin Luther King Jr. Be like um, Wilberforce. Be like Mother Teresa. And, and then you can have these, these really high standards of people that you need to go out and live your life like, and you're just going to walk out of here like, the, like the, uh, the rich young ruler earlier in Mark, who was, you know, Lord, what do I need to inherit eternal life? He says, well, what, you know, what have you done? He's kept all the commandments from, from childhood on. But you lack one thing. So all that you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And he goes away sad because he's very wealthy. I mean, we would go away sad. Because I'm not sure how do we do that? How do we live up to that? I don't want to downplay Christ as, as an example. He needs to be forefront in our minds of what it means to be following and loving God with our lives. But I want to now turn in order to sort of address this side of things. We've looked at what it means to love God with the soul. We looked at it from an anthropological perspective, from perspective of what it me- does it mean to be human and to have a soul and to have a body, and then how would that mean to how would that look to love God with that? But let's look at it from the other side of things. Let's look at it from a theological perspective. Who is this God that commands us to love him? Who is this God that commands us to love him? In order to look at this, I want to go back to the text, and I want us to imagine the scribe. The scribe is there before Jesus, and he's, he's asking, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds and gives him the correct answer, and, and the scribe kind of says, yes, that's, that's the correct answer. You've, you've answered well, and I'll add a little bit more to it, and, and Jesus says to him, you know, basically, good job. You're, you're very close to the kingdom of heaven. And you just want to say to the scribe, does the scribe see who Jesus is? You know, if this is Emmanuel, God with us, the scribe just asked the incarnate Lord, the divine Logos, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, what is the greatest commandment? And he, he sort of deals with it intellectually and, and, and turns around and walks away. Scribes are good at asking the question, what? They're good at, at knowing, at, at cataloging, at systematizing, at organizing, at prioritizing. Now, I'm studying systematic theology. It, 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 part of that is laying things out systematically, knowing what we're talking about when we talk about God and and putting it all together. Academia is full of scribes. The scribe walks away. There's this wonderful passage in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lectures on Christology, which which is great because we had a, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote earlier, so this is perfect. It says that, if the, if, if the Word becomes flesh, if God has really come among us, if He's really become a man, there's no possibility of incorporating Him into our own categories of understanding, of making Him fit 
into our own philosophies. It's, it's the classification. When we ask the what question, we, we want to get an answer that we can classify because we have this, these categories in our minds that we would say, say, okay, what's happening here? What's this? What is this that's going on? And, and, and when we find out, we have these categories, and we take those categories, and we fit this thing into those categories, this pre, uh, preconceived categories, these a priori categories, if you want to use the, the technical term, for Bonhoeffer, that sort of philosophy is never foundational to theology. See, we don't start with philosophy and we don't start with our categories, our systems of understanding things and then fit the revelation of God into those. For Bonhoeffer, the question what needs to be turned into the question who. Bonhoeffer says this, there is in fact only one question left. Who are you? Speak. The question, who are you, is the question of deposed, distraught reason. But it is equally the question of faith. Who are you? Are you God himself? And when God, when, when, when we ask that question of Christ, and God reveals himself to us on his terms, he shatters our expectations with good news, like Paul on the road to Damascus. He overwhelms us and reveals himself to us. When we turn away from wanting to classify God and put him into our preconceived categories and then address him directly and say, who are you? That's the question of faith. That's where theology begins. And the scribe missed his opportunity. In order to say, what's the greatest commandment? Who are you? And I'm not trying to say shame on you to the scribe. It's a, it's a mistake that we all make. And the point, too, is that, is that the scribe could hardly be blamed. You see, the God who would love us, the God who would command us to love him with our very lives, our very selves, is the God himself who, who could be missed allowed himself to be missed, allowed the scribe to walk away. He didn't grab the scribe by the collar, turn him around and say, I am, I am the one who gives this commandment to you. He doesn't do that. He lets him walk away. This turns out to be the very character of the God we worship. He allows himself to be missed. And the point here is that, is that in the command to love, God, God gives us the freedom in that command to love him back. One of the, one of the, um, the stories that is the most significant in my own life in wanting to become uh, a theologian, an academic, um, and to study theology with, with my life was reading Soren Kierkegaard, and there's this quote, and I, I remember in college, I memorized it um, because it was so significant to me. In his philosophical fragments, um, Kierkegaard starts telling this parable about 
what it would mean for, for God to reveal himself to people. And he, he talks about it in terms of suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. And it's an image of God who wants to love, we all know the, the type of story, falls in love with a humble maiden. A king falls in love with a humble maiden. How does he win her love? Well, he doesn't come with his chariots and ride into her town and say, I'm the king and I love you and I want you. He would never know that that love was true. The king, of course, would have to become, would have to become humble himself. Would have to become a peasant and then win the love of the beloved. And Kierkegaard writes this, Moved by love, God is thus eternally resolved to reveal himself. But if love is the motive, so love must also be the end. For it would be a contradiction. It would be a contradiction for God to have a motive and an end which did not correspond. His love is the love of the learner, and his aim is to win him. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, and only in equality or unity that there can be understanding. Kierkegaard goes on in that philosophical fragments to say that there's, there's no particular advantage for the contemporary of Jesus. That, that, that Jesus doesn't come overwhelming us with power and glory and might. He comes in humble form, comes obedient to the point of death. He, he doesn't have anything that would recommend him to us. And so people missed him left and right, left and right. Unless God revealed himself, people would miss him. It's similar to, to the Gospel of Mark, where, where you read through the Gospel of Mark and, and Jesus is telling the disciples over and over again, don't go and tell people about this. Keep this a secret. Keep it to yourself. It's not, he's not overwhelming people with his majesty and his glory. The God who commands us to love him wants that love to be true, which means that love needs to be free. Who can command love? I mean, when, I, when I was married, and, and we, we sang, How Great Thou Art. Um, I was married in the eastern Sierra on um, Mono Lake, if any of you have been there. And it was absolutely beautiful. My, my dad sang, How Great Thou Art, outside there at Mono Lake. So I just had to share that because I was going to use this illustration. But, you know, when you, when you get married, you, you don't say to your spouse, I command you to love me, right? And I, you just don't do that. You know, if you write your own vows, you know, you don't, you don't write in there, you shall love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, you don't. You confess your own love and you hope and you pray and you desire that your spouse will love you in return. And for however many times you talk about marriage and love being a choice and you make the distinction between phileo and agape and, and eros and you say agape is a sort of love that you choose, the love of, I mean, there's something more to it than that. It's not just something that is a decision. There's something more to it. You can't just command love. Love, if there's anything that needs to be, that requires freedom, it's love. Love is by definition freely given. You cannot command love. So how does God command us to love him? Well, on one hand, it's kind of like my son last Tuesday. We were, we were uh, I was picking him up outside of school, and so we're in Scotland, and it's about four o'clock in the afternoon, which means it's just about dark, 
and it's kind of misty and it's blowing. We're, we're about 100 yards from the ocean. Um, I mean, you just can imagine this. It's, it's incredible. We're, he's like standing there. Behind him is this old cathedral grounds with a graveyard and the tower built in the 1100s. In front of him is his school, which was, you know, a school that the chapel in the school was built in the 1200s. Um, it's just incredible. The wind's blowing, it's misty, it's dark, it's cold, and my son is sitting there shivering because he's not going to put his jacket on. And, and I say, Everett, put your jacket on. And he's, he's like, no, I'm fine. No, Everett, put your jacket on. No, I'm fine. And then, you know, another few minutes of shivering, and Everett, put your jacket on. He gets a kind of sheepish little grin. Okay. <laughs> and he puts his jacket on. I mean, I mean, that's a command of love. I commanded something for the betterment, for the, for the well-being of my son, and he, he obeyed. And so commanding us to love God is, is kind of like that. It's kind of like, you know, commanding a man dying of thirst, drink water. Because it's what we need to live. It's what we were meant for. But it's love that we're commanding. It's not putting on a jacket or drinking water. It's love. And so because it's love that we're commanding, it's something that's free. It has to be given freely. Only God can command love because only God truly sets us free. Only God can command love because only God can truly set us free. But if he's really going to set us free, it's more than just an example he's going to give us. Jesus will be more than just an example. He's going to have to do something to, to accomplish our freedom. The gospel is about God accomplishing and giving us and granting us our freedom. In the Old Testament, God creates us. and At a very basic level, he sets us free when he creates us. And God saves, when God saves his people, he sets them free out of the hand of slavery in Egypt. And he brings them into the promised land. That's the context in which the Shema is given. It's right as they're poised, right as they're about to go into the promised land and be given the land of, 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 that they had hoped for and longed for. And after God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, he gives them this command. And so he's the God who has saved them. But the gospel, when God becomes flesh and dwells among us, there's something much more significant that's going on here. Actually, something that radically relativizes every other act of salvation that God has done so that Jesus Christ himself becomes the, the key to interpreting everything that has gone before, everything that will come after. This is how God saves. If you want to see how God saves, look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ and interpret the old from that perspective and look forward to what's going to come from that perspective. And the gospel, the gospel is about the God who commands love coming and fulfilling that command himself. The God who commands us to love him comes to us and fulfills that command himself on our behalf and invites us in to participate in his fulfillment of that command. The, the, the great theologian Karl Barth, when he, talks about, when he talks about the atonement, he talks about we, we need to understand this, not in this courtroom metaphor of this judge who's up there, and then Jesus walks in and, and, and stands there and says, says I'll, take the, I'll take the penalty for the, for the sin that the defendant is uh, deserving. Well, well, there's some truth to that. 
He says it is the judge who is judged in our place. The judge himself comes down and himself is judged in our place. It's the same thing here. The commander, the one who commands us to love, comes down and fulfills that command in our place for us, which sets us free from that demand. It's precisely here that the gospel comes into full force. It's this good news that needs to be proclaimed. If you are overwhelmed with the burden of Jesus' example and all the examples of the heroes of the faith and all the examples of these people who have done these tremendous things, realize that Jesus Christ comes and fulfills this perfectly on our, behalf, on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the grace. So this whole idea of loving God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength is all encompassed in God's absolute and final yes of grace to us. He sets us free, and in that freedom, He can command us to love Him because He also gives us the freedom. So this is where I'm going to get a little theological and, and, and dogmatic, if you will. It is His love for the Father, Jesus' love for the Father, that is that love in which we participate. When we turn to love God, we find that it's not really our love in the end, but it's Christ's love that we participate in. I mean, so the second point here, we participate in His love for the Father through the power of the Spirit. It's the gift of the Spirit that enables us to love Him, that enables us to follow Him and give our lives to Him. Instead of the law being, the law, Ken talked about this last week, instead of the law being placed on our forehead, in our hands, on the gates, on our doorposts, the law is, is, is put in us, it's on our hearts in the Spirit. The Spirit is given to us. That law is internalized. It becomes part of who we are in the power of the Spirit. And it's through this indwelling presence of the Spirit that we participate in Christ's love for the Father. So there's a sort of dialectic here. You are commanded to love God with your soul, but God gives you the ability to do it. He empowers you through His Spirit to love Him and to be obedient to Him. I mean, it's summed up. We, we had another from 1 John 4, 10. It was on the, on the slide there. Somebody was hacking into my computer. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The distinction dissolves here between commandment and gift. The distinction dissolves between commandment and gift. They become one. So, to love God with your soul is to love God with your entire life. Resist dividing yourself and others up. I mean, this plays out perfectly with the concern at this church for justice, right? 
It's that the concern for justice and the concern for the gospel are not two separate things. They belong together because we as human beings are body and soul together. When we talk about saving souls, that's going to necessarily include saving the living person in their embodied being, working for peace, working for reconciliation, working for justice. Jesus is our example. Jesus gave his whole life for others' whole lives. But he is also the one who frees us. We participate then in his love for the Father. We enter into this. I mean, if, 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 we are breathe, if life is breathed out into us in creation, that breath is returned into God in our love for him and giving him our lives. We, it, is, it is that breathing out of sending the Son and that return that Jesus says he returns to the Father and he brings us with him. And so we, we then participate in his love for the Father. And if that love for the Father, if that is what Jesus did, if He's our example, then we know that loving God is loving what He loves. And what does God love? For God so loved the world. God's mission, in John 20, the mission which, with he, which he sends Jesus is the very mission we are given. He breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit. And... He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So, in the end, if I'll leave you with this picture, back to the, the, the image of the river. <clears throat> I'm told in Bend now, in the last few years, this whole stand-up paddling thing has become all the rage here. If you imagine a river, I mean, we do all sorts of things with the river. You know, we, we get on the boards and you, and you paddle around, you get in your kayak and you paddle around, you, you sit on the saw and you, and you play and you splash, the kids splash in the water, um, you admire it, you walk over bridges on it. God is calling us with our lives to dive in, to jump in, not to just be an admirer, not just to play around, not just to sprinkle some water on us here and there when it's, when it's necessary, when we want to, when we feel good. He's calling us to give our entire lives to him, to just jump in. That's what I take loving God with the soul to be all about. And when we do that, he carries us. He carries us downstream. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, the gift of yourself, we thank you for the way you have called us to be your people, given us a ministry of peace and reconciliation and justice. We thank you that you have freed us so that we might love you with all that we are in the freedom that you have called us to. Now thank you for being with us, for calling us your people, for calling us your children and for giving us a vocation, a calling to love you with our whole lives. It's in your, the, Son, the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.